This podcast is sponsored by the Davenant Institute. Online at davenantinstitute.org. Hear more at the conclusion of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. You are listening to Mortification of Spin, and as always, uh, my name is Todd Pruitt. Uh, that's my name every day, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Carl Truman. Uh, Carl, good to, uh, to see you, even if it is via Zoom. And uh, we have a returning guest. You know, we always have a lot of sympathy for our returning guests, because our assumption is, is that there must be something terribly wrong for them to continue to risk their reputation by just coming on with us. I mean, she, Carl, she that pretty much right? I think. Yes. I, I guess so. I guess so. But um, uh, we are uh, very happy uh, to uh, welcome back once again, uh, Matthew Barrett. Matthew Barrett is the Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, my alma mater. Um, and Matthew, I, I don't know how Matthew does it. Matthew is a, is, is a husband and a father. And he also, like every other book that comes out, he's either the author or the editor of it. I don't know how he does it. I want to pick his brain sometime about this. But he's already um, uh, quite prolific. He's also the executive editor of one of my favorite uh, um, online theological journals. It's called Credo Magazine. I would encourage you to get online and find that. It's really, really well done. Um, And... uh, uh, we're just thankful to have him back on. Now, Matthew, the occasion of this uh, of this visit today is the release of your new book called Simply Trinity. Um, it uh, it follows on the heels of your book uh, None Greater, uh, which looks at what you call the undomesticated attributes of God. Now you take a closer look, as it were, zoom in sort of, uh, more specifically on the doctrine of uh, the Trinity. So, first of all, thank you for coming back on with us. Hey, thank you for for having me. Um, I I love what you guys are doing, and uh, always so encouraged. Um, you know, by the topics you're choosing, and uh, I, I'm I'm just so thankful for you. Thank we, you. We like no. having you on, Matthew. We we could do with absolutely. More, you're we could our do favorite with more guest. guests with that appropriately <laughs> humble and grateful attitude. That uh, we make, we make people big shots. We make <laughs> make and break them. I, I didn't want to, you know, admit my true motive and that sort of thing. But uh, since you mentioned it, Carl, uh, why not? <laughs> <laughs> now, Matthew, the, the most pressing thing I have to ask you. Now, let's just hypothetical situation. Um, you, you you have to move your family and leave Kansas City. Um, uh, tomorrow, and so you can only have one last meal. Where do you go get barbecue one last time in Kansas City? Well, my answer will probably surprise those who are uh, familiar with all the hot spot barbecue places in KC. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of them. Um, our, one of our favorites, maybe the favorite, is a little hole in the wall called Hog Jaw over in North Kansas City, just over. Uh, just over the river from downtown Kansas City. Yep. And uh, 
Our kids love it. Um, their brisket is, is I think, one of the best. And um, they have some, some really good burnt ends. I, mm. I actually just taught a, a seminar on philosophical theology. And uh-huh. about halfway through, I mean, it's a heavy subject. <laughs> so I said, let's just stop. And how about we just go over to Hog Jaw and get some barbecue? But the problem was when we came back, we were so stuffed. <laughs> no one could think. Everyone just wanted to take a nap. So Okay, so Kansas City residents, if you have not heard of Hog Jaw in North Kansas City, uh, that's that's where to go to. Okay, I mean, I mean, that's the most important thing I had to talk to you. But I thought as long as we have you on here, <laughs> we would talk a little bit about the doctrine of, uh, of the Trinity. Now, uh, Matthew, one of the things that, that you've been very much involved in is, is what, you know, we call theological retrieval. Um, going back to the first four or five centuries of the church, uh, looking at, 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 at the best theologians and pastors and preachers of the first four or five centuries, and actually concluding that we might still have something to learn from them. I know it's a, it's a novel idea, yeah. uh, but we might actually have something to learn from those people who spoke the language of Jesus and the apostles, who lived uh, closest proximity uh, to Jesus and the apostles. Uh, and so you've been very much involved in, in this project of, of theological uh, retrieval. And that shows in your books, and it shows, obviously, in your most recent book, uh, Simply Trinity. Now, what would you say to someone who says, look, I'm a little wary of these early church fathers, um, you know, just way too, way too platonic, you know, way too worldly philosophical for me. I've got the Bible. I can read it for myself. Um, but, but the early church fathers were just too esoteric, too much into metaphysics and, and platonic philosophy. What do you say to those voices who raise those issues? You know, uh, you must be living in my world, Todd. (laughs) (laughs) Because no one's ever asked you that. You you can take the boy out of the Southern Baptist Convention, (laughs) but you cannot take the Southern Baptist Convention out of the boy. (laughs) Uh, I'm starting to wonder if you have like a a secret camera. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, in all seriousness, this is a question that uh, I get a lot. You know, and of course, I'd love to hear, you know, Carl, you're a historian, so I'm sure you'll have something to say about this too. But I mean, when we just talk about history to start off, um, it's the the objection, that type of objection is so ironic to me because uh, we we don't tend to uh, treat other people in history that way, if that makes sense. Um, So, you know, anytime, you know, a student or a pastor picks up a book in the last you know, 300 years, 400 years, maybe, they always assume always that I'm this, this isn't uh, inspired scripture. So uh, I'm reading this uh, to help me understand scripture. But of course, of course, right. uh, There's going to be things that I disagree with. And, but there's also, that's not going to stop me then from benefiting in countless ways from so many things I can learn from. So it's a bit ironic that suddenly when we go back in time to the fathers, all of a sudden we can't, we can't learn anything. We can't appreciate them. uh, We can't benefit from them. Uh, It's also revealing though. So it's ironic, but it's also revealing, I think. And I think it shows something deeper under the surface that we, we don't, 
it's not really about the fathers. It's actually that we feel uncomfortable and maybe a bit ignorant about the doctrine of God. Because when you go back to the patristic age, they, you know, wrestled over many issues, but the doctrine of God was forefront on their minds and for good reason. When you look at the early church, they are uh, laboring to defend a doctrine of God that is faithful to scripture, but one that also guards the church from any number of heresies, which leads me to another, another point. And I, um, you know, this may step on some toes, but, but I just have to, I, I point this out all the time that the type of mentality that says, you know, I'm just going to, I don't need anything but the Bible, you know, no creed, but the Bible, that type of, of mentality. Isn't it interesting that when you go back to the fathers, it wasn't the fathers who, who had that type of hermeneutic. It was actually the Arians, uh, those who were denying a biblical and orthodox understanding of the Trinity and the deity of Christ. They had that mentality in which they said, what, you know, there's that saying, you know, every heretic has his Bible verse. Uh, it, it, there's truth to that saying, because they were actually approaching the scriptures in, a, in that same type of mindset to say, well, I don't. I'm just going to interpret this verse. I'm not going to necessarily look at the entire canon. And the fathers came along and said, hold on a second. Uh, you're actually departing from the whole scriptural witness, including the rule of faith, which has been faithfully passed down to us. Um, and I guess the last thing I would say is this, and, and I so try to emphasize this, especially in the classroom. I, in fact, I talk about it first day uh, theology one, though now it's starting to be, you know, first day of whatever class I'm teaching. Uh, when we have that mindset, we are actually sounding a lot more like an enlightenment type of individual than we are a Christian. Uh, in other words, we're, we're kind of assuming, we're kind of using the Bible as an excuse to say, well, I can do this by myself, um, rather than having humility to say, well, hold on a second. I don't need to reinvent the wheel. That actually can lead to certain heresies. Instead, I can stand on the shoulders of others. And so I encourage those out there to let's exercise a, a historical and a hermeneutical humility to retrieve uh, those insights that have come before us. Uh, and I think you'll find, you know, in my circles, we, we love to talk about how we're for the church, right? Well, I, I also like to add to that and say, well, if you, if you are, if you really mean that, then you will read the Bible with the church. Otherwise, you, you don't end up being for the church in the end. Yeah, yeah. I'm always struck as well by the, uh, this, uh, this idea that somehow the early church fathers are profoundly infected by Greek philosophy. It seems to me that in any point in church history, theology is always conducted to some extent, in dialogue with whatever the dominant philosophical paradigms of the day are. Mm. When I teach on, on immutability or impassibility, I point out to the students that that's actually not something any early church father raised as an issue. You know, for Arius, it was precisely because God was unchangeable. One of the reasons was he was unchangeable. The, the, the second person became a problem. Uh, move to the modern era. Why, why are we so hung up on, on change now? Well, Hegel 
you know, uh, the notion of a God that changes is is no more or less philosophical, one might say, on, on the surface yeah. than a God who doesn't change. It's just a different philosophical paradigm. The, the question is, which philosophical paradigm is best used to connect to what, what Scripture teaches? Do you think that that lack of philosophical self-consciousness is a key part of why not to put it too bluntly, why an awful lot of evangelicalism hasn't had a Christian doctrine of God in terms of the historic creedal understanding of the doctrine of God. There's, there's no doubt about it, Carl. <laughs> um, we, we not only have a, you know, when you look at, you know, evangelicalism today, there's not only a suspicion towards systematic theology, but definitely anything philosophical. And again, if we know our history right, we're completely then out of sync um, with Christian orthodoxy before us, in which they recognized, well, okay, Arius, for example, can quote the same Bible verse. <laughs> yeah. How then are we going to actually clarify what the Bible, we, we need words. And philosophy then is, is crucial to that enterprise to, to come alongside us and say, here are key words that can help us and actually uh, protect what the Bible says. You know, if I could add to what you, you just said, Carl, especially about, um, you know, that, that type of objection that says, oh, it's just a, a Greek imposition and, and that sort of thing. Again, uh, I can't help but, but note uh, the irony, because if you go back and look at 20th century Protestant liberalism, this is actually the very same type of a of, of objection that you, you see in Protestant liberals, uh, in which you, you just take someone like an Adolf von Harnack, uh, one of the poster boys, right? Uh, isn't it fascinating that this is the type of mentality he used to then say, let's dispense with orthodox, uh, an orthodox doctrine of God, and then from there he moved on into just about every single doctrine. Um, I don't know that evangelicals always realize that when they say that, they're actually sounding like the very camp that they so much, you know, oppose. But the other thing I find is that it's really uh, such an insult to the, the greatest patristic minds. Uh, you look at someone like Augustine, for example, when we, when we act like, you know, we, we, type, we, we raise that objection, uh, well, it's almost as if we're acting like, you know, you take an Augustine, like, like the guy was an idiot. <laughs> I mean, he, he was brilliant enough to, to say, hey, when I look at the Platonic tradition, here are aspects of it that correspond with and actually uh, support and encourage our Christian understanding of uh, the divine and the world in front of us. And simultaneously, someone like Augustine could still say, and here are aspects where, yeah, I don't think they go quite far enough, or maybe they, they misunderstand the soul, for example, and pre-existent. They caught on to those. Now, maybe they didn't do it perfectly every time, but, but notice how insulting that is to the fathers, right? To think, oh, we can do it today, but they somehow weren't able <laughs> to look at other uh, facets of other worldviews, in fact, and, and recognize areas in which they could uh, actually have correlation with, and then areas where 
that that they would reject. I think, you know, since you mentioned philosophy, it's interesting. I think underneath this type of objection, we also have, are just uncomfortable maybe with general revelation. Hmm. Um because, and I just don't see that in the fathers. They understand general revelation so that they can look at, say, a Plato or Aristotle or a Plotinus, and they can, they can say, hey, you know, out of all of, of the world, these individuals get pretty close. About, they seem to be able to use general revelation about as close as you can without being a Christian. Right. <laughs> and and right. so they're able to, to engage them in dialogue with them. All that to say, I, I do think that type of objection does kind of come out of a, a fundamentalist uh, anxiety, if, I, if, I, if yes. that makes sense. Yes. And I, I'm glad you raised general revelation because this is an area where Protestants really need to up their game, so to speak. Um, the fact is, Paul makes some stunning statements, not only in Romans 1, but also in Romans 2, about what unbelievers are actually able to know, um, not only from observing the created order, but, you know, as in Romans 2, what God has actually written on their conscience, the conscience of the unbeliever. Now, we all agree that they, they, they can't understand God's redemptive work through the cross. We, we know that. We know the limitations of general revelation. But but we also ought to, to 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 be clear on on the power of general revelation and what actually may be known and and Paul addresses that in in Romans one and two uh, we we see it in his preaching um, in uh, um, in at, at Athens in, in Acts chapter seventeen at, at Lystra in um, Acts chapter fourteen mm-hmm. um, so Protestants really need to up their game. Um, on that a, a great deal. It shouldn't surprise us if we look back at, say, a, a Plato and say, there were some things that he, that of course he understood yeah. about reality and about what God must be. Um, and uh, the subtitle of, of your new book um, is The Unmanipulated Father, Son, um, and Spirit. And, and so in, in the book, you address concerns over, you know, what we would oftentimes call social Trinitarianism, uh, reading our social relationships back into the uh, the eternal relations of, of Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, you know, we say things, and and I've heard all of my life, you know, statements like, well, you know, um, God is social. You know, we, we're in the image of God. We're social. And so, you know, be, because God is social. And where we, where we have to exercise a lot of caution there is that's kind of like saying, you know, God is powerful and I am powerful. You know, God has power and I have power. There's a, there's a huge, well, yeah, but on, on statements like that, why do we need to resist this, this impulse we seem to have? And some of it's just born out of bad hermeneutics or sloppy hermeneutics. Why do we need to resist this impulse we have to read back into uh, the, the, the Trinitarian relations, um, what we experience in relationships in our humanity? Why do we need to resist that? Well, I, I think you've, you've really touched on one of the, the most important aspects of Trinitarian discussions in, in the last uh, decade is, you know, in the, in the 20th century, there was all this hype and excitement over the Trinity. Uh, some called it a Trinitarian Renaissance. And anyone who was anyone was, you know, writing on the Trinity. But as, as time has gone on and the dust has kind of settled some, theologians and historians so you know i'm not i'm not the first to point this out uh, but many are starting to, to recognize well hold on a second 
what kind of Trinity exactly were we all excited about? What kind of Renaissance was this? And a number of them have, have said, you know what, this, is, this doesn't seem to be a renaissance of biblical and orthodox Trinitarianism, but of what's being called social Trinitarianism. Now, social Trinitarianism is, um, you know, very diverse and, and there's many different players, but there are certain consistent themes, certain continuities across the board to one degree or another. And for many social Trinitarians, um, the Trinity is, is not so much defined in, in, um, in terms of, say, divine simplicity to, to explain the unity of, of the persons. It's not explained so much in terms of eternal relations of origin, uh, the Son begotten from the Father, the Spirit proceeding from the Father and Son. Um, rather, uh, the Trinity is defined more as a society or a community, uh, one in which uh, the persons are defined by roles or relationships, not, not relations in the metaphysical, historical use of that term, but relationships, uh, more in the sense that we have relationships as human persons. And some have gone so far to say that uh, in fact, some evangelicals, even evangelical philosophers, have gone so far to say that um, what is so essential, what's the essential component of this doctrine, this social doctrine of the Trinity? Well, it means that each person is their own center of consciousness and will. It's not surprising that uh, the charge of tritheism starts to quickly uh, come on the heels of, of those type of statements, because historically that that was just the case. Um, but in the 20th century, um, with this redefinition of the Trinity in uh, social terms, uh, all of a sudden it was acceptable. But more to your point, Todd, um, there's another fast another story. Uh, <laughs> the story's not finished, and I, this hit me um, years and years ago. This really hit me hard. As I, I was uh, sitting there, just looking at my bookshelves and all of the things I had read on the Trinity, just in in books that were published in the last hundred years, and as I started to look through it all, I just realized um, shelf after shelf, there's a theme. Uh, not only was the Trinity redefined in societal terms, but there was a beeline made from the Trinity to society. So that this social redefinition of the Trinity was then used for every social agenda right. under the sun. So the arguments—I mean, there's so many of them—but um, they, you know, in the 20th century, it would, you know, let's use a social Trinity to then justify a certain view of politics. Mm -hmm. uh, let's use the, a social Trinity to to be our paradigm for uh, different views of church government. Uh, let's let's use a, a social trinity to be our prototype then for a, a certain uh, view of gender. Uh, the, the irony, though, is 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 you start to notice this uh, connection constantly being made. Um, you start to note. Oh, and and, and some I, I can't forget this. I, I've seen some. Um, you know, this will really uh, you know 
Carl Truman, I think, will especially enjoy this one. Um, some saying, let's use a social trinity for our, our view of ecology, uh, for the environment. Yeah. And, um, and then some go in the direction say, let's use it for our view of homosexuality. I mean, it was just endless, endless. Yeah. Um, and I started to notice that there came a point where I said, we're not just using the Trinity, we're manipulating the Trinity, whether we want to admit it or not, for our particular social agenda. Mm -hmm. What was so a, a bit comical was you then have social Trinitarians come into using the same social Trinity, but coming to opposite conclusions. <laughs> Whether right. it's politics or church government or um, gender, and there's a certain subjectivism there. I, I argue in my book, we evangelicals don't want to admit it, but we are more influenced by this tendency than, than we like to think. Yeah. And if we don't, if we don't start realizing it, uh, well, in the end, we're not all that different from those modern those modern theologians that that we so you know we we always think oh that's them over there. No, we're we're not all that different from them in the end. Right. Yeah, and it's interesting because you know you mentioned liberals and conservatives have have done this. I mean, you can read Jürgen Moltmann, yes, and see him uh, use the Trinity uh, for you know certain social causes and liberation theology and the ecology uh, movement that kind of thing. Yeah, it's fascinating. Well, I remember years ago when the social trinity was really, really popular, I was teaching in the UK, being struck, you know, 16th, 17th century was my territory. And the socially radical people, the egalitarian, you know, the, those pushing for sort of, you know, overthrowing of unjust structures, et cetera, et cetera, they were the Unitarians. Yeah. They, you know, it was actually the non, the anti-Trinitarians who were the, the socially radical. But, Anyway, Matthew, it's been great uh, having you on. We do want to recommend your book to our listeners, uh, Simply Trinity by Matthew Barrett. It's just come out. Well worth getting hold of. Uh, and if you've ever read anything by Matthew before, you know that he has a great gift for making complicated ideas uh, very graspable. And using basketball. <laughs> and, yeah, there are some there are some problems with the sports analogies. <laughs> um, we we eagerly await the English translation of this work. Yeah. Carl's been but, wanting uh, you to incorporate cricket uh, more, yeah. uh, Matthew, in, instead of the NBA. Yeah, yeah. I, every time every time you get the ball, you score. What kind of a sport <laughs> is that? <laughs> it's ridiculous. Just tune in for the last two minutes and see who gets the ball last. That will tell you who wins. <laughs> Anyway, please do visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, where you stand a chance to register and enter to win a copy of Matthew's book. Uh, please, while you're there, consider making a donation to the Alliance. We are a listener-supported podcast. We provide the podcast for free, uh, but of course, we can't produce it for free. So we do hope that uh, some of you will, will feel led by the Spirit to make a, a small donation to the Alliance there. Other than that, all that remains is for me to thank Matthew for being with us today, to thank you for listening, and look forward to being with you again next week.
Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. I don't yeah. get the barbecue thing, by the way. Oh, uh, Carl. It's a kind of, people talk about barbecue, and it's sort of, it's messy. It's sloppy. Oh, oh, oh it's, People eat it with their hands, you know. It's kind of no, it's no cup of tea, Carl. It's no cup of tea. Bless exactly, your heart. Exactly, oh. exactly. Okay, Matthew, when you're, when you're taking your wife out, next time you take her out to dinner, um, if you haven't eaten at Rye, R-Y-E, on the plaza, okay, go there. Um, oh. The food is Phenomenal, had the best fried chicken I've ever had in my life, but it's upscale fried chicken. Okay. Upscale phenomenal. fried chicken. <laughs> phenomenal. You are so sophisticated. He's talking like a true Midwesterner. Yeah. <laughs> upscale deep upscale fried sausages. Fried <laughs> You'll love it. It's excellent. Uh, oh, man, I'm, what I'm, is this country that I've come to? The Davenant Institute seeks to retrieve the wisdom of classical Protestantism to renew and build up the contemporary church. Through publications, events, and courses, they equip lay people, pastors, scholars, and Christian educators by connecting them with the theological, ethical, and cultural riches of Protestants' past. Through their online program, Davenant Hall, and their residential study center, Davenant House, they provide two graduate-level degree programs in classical Protestantism and also welcome anyone taking one-off courses in theology, church history, philosophy, and more. Online classes are taught by expert scholars in two-hour weekly Zoom sessions over 10 weeks from just $149 per class. Next term's courses include the Reformation and the Modern World. Unlocking the Book of Romans, Essence and Attributes of God, and many more. Spring term courses begin April 12th. Find out more at davenantinstitute.org and on Facebook and Twitter.